Hey, this is Nathan Jenkins from Loon Mountain Ministry, and I want to thank you for checking out our podcast today. We welcome you to join us, the trees, the rocks, and all of creation as we worship our great God. Enjoy the message. Good morning, Loon Mountain Ministry. It is such a blessing to be with you this morning. Our scripture today comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 in the NIV translation. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Thank you, Sarah. You can be seated. Uh, You don't have to turn it off. Just set it down. Can you guys hear me okay? Didn't have a chance to check this beforehand. Let's, um, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, once again, we're just so grateful uh, to be here today. Lord, uh, as we look out at the beauty of your creation, Lord, we're filled with awe. And uh, God, that is the fear of you, as Chris just talked about, or the fear of the Lord. And you, you say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, Lord, as we, as we seek you through your word in the books of wisdom, the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord, I pray that it would begin with a fear of you, a healthy fear of you. Lord, bring us to a greater understanding of who you are and what you've done to, for us through your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, Lord, that your voice would be the one that is heard most clearly. Lord, I pray all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, hello, everybody. My name's Drew. I'm uh, the assistant pastor here at Loon Mountain Ministry, and every once in a while, they give me the, uh, the opportunity to preach, so that's pretty cool. And uh, so we are in the book of Ecclesiastes right now uh, as a church. We have been g- making our way through uh, a wisdom series on three main books of wisdom in the Bible. First being Job, which if you were here last summer, you probably heard, we were probably preaching through the book of Job. We made it through the book of Job, uh, and now we're in Ecclesiastes. Um, And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, the author actually introduces us to a character in the very beginning. And this, this character is a wise man who asks these questions. What is the point of life And what do we gain from all of our work and all of our toil and all of our strife? This character in the book of Ecclesiastes is known as the teacher. He spent his life conducting experiments, experiment after experiment, trying to supply for the readers a hypothesis. But to all of his experiments, he applied a certain restriction it was a limitation under which all of his experience, experiments would come. 
And that was he would only look for answers under the sun. He limited his experiments to what he, what he could experience on earth. In all of his tests and evaluations, he, was, he basically took God out of the equation. He let his sight be confined only to what was seen. And all that he was able to find is that the answers he sought here on earth were vain, absurd, and impossible to define. The word that he repeatedly concludes in Hebrew is hevel, which translated means vapor or smoke. But a lot of, a lot of your Bibles will translate it either uh, meaningless or vanity. Now this is his most constant reply as he uses this phrase 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the teacher was so passionate about his message because the experience, experiments he recorded were not just conceptual or philosophical, they were his autobiography. The teacher spent his life pursuing everything under the sun. Knowledge, wisdom, laughter, folly, food and drink, projects and possessions, silver and gold, and all kinds of experiences. He denied himself nothing. He left no rock unturned. But after all of his achievements, experiments, and pursuits, his conclusion was still hevel, vapor. You can't hold on to it. All of it was deceiving. None of it delivered purpose or gain, satisfaction or meaning. None of it was permanent. All of it was fleeting. This is, in a nutshell, what we have seen so far in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the first three and a half chapters. Today we're in chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. In these verses, the teacher makes a stark contrast between a person who has no one to share life with and one who does. Let's reread verses 7 and 8 again and see what the teacher has to say. He says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. His eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read these verses, my my mind immediately went to, a Christmas carol. How could it not, right? These verses perfectly describe the old and miserable Ebenezer Scrooge, a rich, lonely old man with no one to care for and no one who particularly cares for him. He's consumed by his work and his wealth, and he's miserable as all get out. Scrooge is such a miser that he won't even allow himself the basic, simple pleasures of adequate heat and adequate light. He literally lives and works in a cold, dark existence, and he subjects that cold darkness onto everyone around him. It doesn't take someone as wise as the teacher from Ecclesiastes to see that a life like this is nonsense. While it's easy to look at old Scrooge and call him a fool, we need to be careful that a version of this mindset doesn't creep in and slowly take over us. I'm not that old yet, but I've seen no shortage of friendships and families and marriages sacrificed at the altar of money 
career, ministry, and progress. What I mean is that I've seen many people justify their individual pursuits by saying that they serve a higher purpose, all the while isolating themselves from the very people they say they're pursuing these things for. And if we're honest, I think most of us can probably relate. Maybe you found yourself too burnt out after meeting the high demands of work that you have no time or energy to play with your kids, attend a game or a recital, or help with a project. Maybe your busy schedule no longer allows you to be a regular part of a church community. Maybe you've been too busy serving the Lord in ministry that you've neglected to take your wife on a date in months. Maybe you even find yourself looking for a reason to stay late at work so that you don't have to face your family because it's just easier to keep working. Maybe this isn't so far from us after all. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we're above putting a wedge between ourselves and the ones we love. Justin Whitmill Early is a, an author and a lawyer who wrote the book The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose in an Age of Distraction. I read this book in the last year, and I would highly recommend it to all of you. Um, he basically, in the book, describes how our habits are constantly forming us into the people that we are becoming. And although I would love to go deep into to more of that book, uh, one idea that he, that he uh, shares in it is that he says, I used to think that my, my greatest achievements in life would come down to a few big moments. But he says, I've come to realize that my greatest achievements are actually going to be a result of many small moments of habit and purpose. He goes on to, uh, to cite the simple act of putting his sons to bed every night and how what that is going to achieve in their relationship and the impact that it's going to have in their life is going to be way more significant than anything he will ever do as an author or a lawyer. All this to say, let's be careful not to neglect the people who we love in the name of something bigger or better. Let's take a look at the second part of the passage. It says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The greatest contrast to Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol is, of course, Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim is the crippled son of Bob Cratchit, an employee of Scrooge. And although the Cratchit family is poor in both wealth and health, their gratitude and love for one another offer them great joy and comfort. For all the things that the teacher in Ecclesiastes has said is vanity or meaninglessness or vapor, he pauses here to point out something in a positive light. So I think we better pay attention. That is, being with people is much greater than being without them. In one sense, this is very practical. When we stick together, we stay warmer. We get more done. 
There's safety and strength in numbers. He talks about these things. But I believe that it's a lot more than just a simple practicality. One of my favorite TV shows, I don't watch a ton of TV, but when I do, I try and watch something that inspires me to go out and live life and not just something that I simply consume. One of my favorite TV shows that I discovered in the last year is the show called Alone. Has anyone seen Alone? Yeah, it's a sweet show. Uh, I'm, I'm a lover of the outdoors, and uh, this, this is a survival show. And to me, it's, it's the most legit sh- survival show there is because, uh, first of all, the people are truly alone. There's not a film crew. Uh, there is uh, medical checks that come in every so often just to make sure that they're still alive. But they're filming themselves. They're taking care of themselves. What they do is these 10 contestants at the beginning of the show they get to choose 10 primitive survival items. Most of them will bring something like rope and a knife and a hatchet, something to start a fire with. And then uh, you start to see some variations, like maybe, uh, for example, they can bring fishing line and hooks, but they can't bring a, a contemporary fishing pole. You know, Some of them will choose to bring a bow and arrow or a slingshot, uh, but they can't bring, obviously, you know, a, a, a firearm or even a compound bow. So it's really interesting. One thing, one of the reasons that I love to watch the show because I like to ask myself if I think I could hack it, right? And I think the answer is probably no, just in case you were wondering. But uh, I love, I love the, the transformation that happens in these people. Part of the show is that uh, the, the prize, the winner, the, the last man standing... The w- last one to say, I'm out or get pulled out because of medical safety reasons, gets $500,000. So in the beginning of the show, you hear a lot about you know, how they're, they're, they're doing it for the money, they're doing it for their family so that they can finally pay off the house or send their kids to college or whatever the case may, may be. And as the show goes on, they start to change their perspectives. You know, you typically about half of the contestants have to tap out, they say, because of accident or injury. So whether that be uh, they cut themselves while they're working around camp, or one guy, he fell into frigid cold water and he just knew that he wasn't going to be able to uh, get himself warm again. Um, You know, some of them actually will burn down their shelter and they've spent weeks building it and they just know that they can't survive without it. That's about half the folks who enter in to this competition. And the other half, two things take them out. One is either typically starvation. The other one is loneliness. And it's really interesting to watch these people's perspective change throughout the course of of staying out there. You know, almost every season there seems to be a person who uh, just says, you know what? After being out here long enough, I've come to realize that what I want most in life, I actually already have. And that's my family. That's the people who I love. That's a simple meal, a warm home-cooked meal, and sharing that with somebody at the end of the day. And now, you, you might think that some of these folks, um, that's just a, you know, something that they would say to save face because things weren't really going well. But no. A number of people actually tap out with plenty of food left in their cash. 
You know, they're doing well. They feel like I could, I could continue doing this, but they're saying it's not worth being alone anymore. This has, this has caused me to see what really matters. And when the contestants allow themselves to become stripped of all the noise and distractions they've surrounded themselves with their whole lives, they quickly realize that, that what they want more than anything is to be with the people they love. I believe living alongside others in community is actually part of what it means to be human. There's a famous quote that says, no man is an island. We're not meant to do it alone. In Genesis 1, when God created Adam, he said, let us make mankind in our image. God was speaking plurally here because God exists eternally in, com- in community with himself. God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And you and I, mankind, being created in his image, are also meant to exist in community. This is why God said after creating Adam, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And then he created Eve, the first woman, to be his companion and his helper. Being in relationship and community with others is part of what it means to be human. If we take a look into the New Testament in the book of Acts, which, by the way, is often viewed as perhaps the greatest example of how the church should live today, we read this in Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is referring to the early church. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Living alongside others in consistent community is number one, essential what it means to be essential to what it means to be human. And number two, it's a part of our calling as God's family here on earth. It's a part of the mission that God has given his people to be ambassadors to the world and to introduce people to his love for them in Jesus Christ. This is impossible to do apart from community. After all, how does Jesus say people will know that we are his disciples? By our love for one another. Our relationship with God must be personal, but it cannot be private. It must exist in the context of community. Living in community is part of what it means to be human, and it's an essential part of, call, of the calling of all who have chosen to follow Jesus. I'm going to wrap things up, and I'm going to do something that I probably am not supposed to in a sermon series, and that's I'm going to jump to the end of the book. The teacher is not the only voice we have in Ecclesiastes. The author wrote a conclusion to the teacher's words, kind of like an epilogue or a a reply. The author's advice is summed up in one sentence at the very end of the book. He says, Fear God and keep his commandments, 
for this is the whole duty of man. This simple phrase is what should be stirring in our hearts as we wrestle with the teacher's disenchantments of meaninglessness and vanity. We need God and his word to know how to live in this world and to understand it. But if we're honest, for many of us, thinking about God and studying his word doesn't relieve the vanity. It's easy for us to get stuck believing that the pointless dissatisfaction of the world will always win as it always has. I made reference to this quote the last time I preached in Ecclesiastes, but it's so relevant to the book that I'm going to share it again. And it's from C.S. Lewis, who's a great thinker and author from the 20th century. And he offers us an alternative to this dissatisfaction we all experience under the sun. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was probably made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy, echo, or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and help others to do the same. The only thing that I believe can truly cut through all the vanity and disappointment that we face in life is that the God who is above the sun entered our reality in Jesus, who is the sun. Jesus removed the restriction that the, a teacher, that the teacher applied to his experiment. Jesus brought heaven to earth to bring us life and show us how to live it. The teacher says knowledge is pointless, but Jesus says there's no greater treasure than knowing me. The teacher says, our desires cannot be fulfilled. Jesus says, I am the ultimate pleasure. The teacher says, riches never satisfy. Jesus says, his provision is better. The teacher says, our toil is in vain. Jesus says, our work in him will last forever. The teacher says, our questions are unanswerable. But Jesus proved he is the answer. The teacher says, everything dies, but Jesus says, those who believe in me will never die. What is the key to a meaningful life under the sun? Fear God and keep his commandments. The problem is that none of us can do that on our own. We have all fallen short. The Bible says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has gone his own way. That's precisely why Jesus needed to come. As I said in the very beginning, our sin separates us from God. But God loved us too much to leave us where we were. So he sent Jesus to enter in to a broken world amongst broken people 
to give his life as a ransom so that we might be healed and our relationship with God restored. Jesus says in John 17, Now this is eternal life, that you know the one true God and Jesus whom he sent. How do we come to know the one true God? How do we fear God and keep his commands? By putting our faith in Jesus, in Christ and in Christ alone. Because what you and I have to understand is that we have offended a perfect and holy God. And no amount of good deeds will earn our way back to him. Jesus is the only way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you believe this? Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you experienced his love and his goodness? There's nothing more that you need to do but surrender to him. Our hope doesn't lie under the sun. Our hope is in heaven, in the Son who loved us and gave himself up for us so that he could bring purpose and meaning to all things. I hope you guys heard good news today. I hope you heard a message of love. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful to have the opportunity to be called your children. Lord, sinful men have lost their way, myself included. But Lord, you have sent your son to become like sinful men so that we can become your sons and daughters. Father, I I pray that holding on to this truth, we might be able to do what the teacher and the author in Ecclesiastes say, and that's to fear you and keep your commandments. Lord, remind us that it's not about our own effort. It's not about us pulling up pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, Lord, but it's all about faith in you. You've already done it, Lord. And when we believe in you, we are fully loved, fully accepted, and we're fully known. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We here at Loon Mountain Ministry are committed to loving God, serving community, and enjoying mountains. We want to thank you for being a part of our collective high five this week as we seek to be a light in the White Mountains and all around the world. Please feel free to reach out to us at info at loonmtnministry.com so we can get more connected. See you guys.